So I got early this morning, some nervous energy and needing to read through the sermon one last time and true to form, I ended up changing it. And it's one of, your, one of you people's fault that's physically in the room right now in the best of ways. As I was getting ready, the, the hallways were still very dark and found myself hearing the doorbell go off, and I'm not going to call by name out of sake for privacy because we're on the internet, so I'll say, Henry, it was you needing to step into the building, and, uh, and I figured that might be the case, and so I went downstairs and, um, and let you in, and five minutes later when we reconverged after everything was taken care of, I looked at you on your way out the door, we were just, just outside of the church building, uh, a building where you now find yourself calling yourself home, sleeping just outside the building now for years. I said, tell me about your mama before you walk away. And I asked for her name, and you shared it with a smile on your face behind your mask. I could see it in your eyes. I said, just tell me one thing you want me to know about her. And the response was, she brought me to church every Sunday. And I just couldn't help but to sense at that time, brother, your mama looking down, smiling and thinking, and here you are still every day at the church. I'm glad you're with us this morning, and I'm glad your mama had such an effect on your life. And I'm glad that the church did with you, and it is an honor, friend, that that continues to be true. You know, a lot of us had mamas that brought us to church every Sunday. Not all of us. Some of us had mothers that wanted nothing to do with the church. But at some point, some motherly figure probably gently, let's hope, grabbed you and nudged you along into the building. Others, maybe by the ear. There are jokes that are true about Willie West loading sometimes up to 15 children in her wagon. She would make the rounds, and they would pile in, and she would bring them into this place. A lot of us have individuals that have been mother figures in our lives that said, I'm going to bring you to church, and I'm going to drop you off, and then I'm going to park the car, and I'm going to come on in, and I'm just going to trust that whoever's walking with you when you're in this space is somebody that will show you who Jesus is and teach you who Jesus is. That's certainly true in my own life. Now, there was a day and an age that some of us knew that we were not only going to be in church on Sunday mornings, but also Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. Can I get an amen from anybody in the room or at home in that sacred space where you are? Yes, you know who I'm talking about. It doesn't even occur to the majority of us that that would be the norm for the life that we know today, is it? And quite honestly, I don't know that that's such a bad thing. It's a good thing, it's a bad thing, it's messy, right? There's the word again. At some point along the way, this local congregation had so many children that we built a three-story cinder block building connected to the sanctuary that was dedicated to the spiritual upbringing of children, every room looking exactly the same, big open room, tons of these teeny tiny little rooms to the side. The children would gather in the large space. Some of you are nodding your heads because you were those children. And then what happens? You go into those teeny tiny rooms and you're mentored and loved. How in the world teachers accomplished this back in the day, I have no idea. 
put two children in one of those little spaces that five of you used to be in, and I think it wouldn't go so well. Now, that's beautiful. But the flip side to that is at some point along the way, as the church grows numerically, what we begin to see happening more and more is the sequestering off of children into those spaces. And in time, what we begin to realize is that in the sequestering off, we could have never known it at the time, what we were effectively doing in removing children from our midst was sending an inadvertent message that the church is actually not theirs, but rather that side of the building is. No malice here, only good intent, doing the best that we can, but with volumes of children comes the need to regiment things. And so it is in the regimenting and the depersonalizing that we see the drift beginning to happen and us not even realizing that that's so. Let's be honest, we have a good enough worship service, the quality's enough, all it takes is a couple of kids, and before you know it, you got parents who are like, I gotta get this kid out of here, they're making too much noise because nobody can worship. And suddenly, we don't mean to, but that becomes the norm. The struggle that we have faced through the generations when we look back to an era where it could just be assumed in Western Christianity that if you open the physical doors to the church, the children would come is no more. What we saw happening in the era where we had that wave of children coming in and stepping into the life of the church is that slowly but surely you find that the older that they get, the less and less engagement we find. And suddenly, before you know it, you hit fast forward by one generation and you see once they're out of high school, that's it. Peace out. And there's a stepping out. And we think, wait, where did you go? Where did you go? And then for a while there, that generation would actually return when they finally had babies of their own. But then when you go to the next generation, you find that that was less and less true. And before you know it, this church here in this physical place joins droves and droves and droves of other Western Christian churches where we find that the generations don't actually come back. And in the end, you hit fast forward You have a white cinder block, three-story building with hardly a child in any one of the spaces for year after year after year. And you wonder, what happened? And again, there's no malice. It's not like somebody said, let's get rid of these kids. They're driving us crazy. It's the opposite of that. It's just, we just drifted, did we not? When I became pastor of this church 16 years ago, we brought with us two children. Our youngest was not here yet. He wasn't even even the star in the eyes that he is today. Wow, you all are excited. You look at that moment, you see see images now of you holding a six-month-old newborn daughter of ours, and you can just see picture after picture after picture of the 60 or so people that were active in the life of the church like here regularly, just we have lots of pictures of you all holding that baby who doesn't look like a baby anymore, by the way, in the best of ways. That's, that's high praise, by the way, kiddo. So we knew you wanted us here, and we knew that you wanted our children here. I think what you don't realize is that it was several months into serving as pastor here that I was just about at wit's end with this church. Because whereas 
God was stirring and something amazing was happening in this place, we couldn't find anyone or it felt like beg hardly anyone to be with our children in the nursery. And I just remember thinking to myself how strange it is that a church that so loves us and so wants us here with our children doesn't realize in the blindness of it and their excitement of it that they are desperately needed in the lives of our children. Not just in the loving and the carrying around of the baby while parents can eat on a Wednesday night, but in the moment when spiritual formation is supposed to be offered, we have my wife sequestered in the three-story cinder block building with a everyday servant or two that certainly was there with her. But all in all, my wife was in the nursery every single Sunday with the expectation she would be there. I don't share that with you as a wagging finger as much as to highlight what we've been missing for so long. What I share with you today is also a hard word that actually becomes beautiful because in the slow drifting away from the nursery and from the Sunday school classroom, what we saw happening in this place is that as awareness came and sight came to eyes, we began to see people engaging with children, now no longer just the pastor's kid, but the small little handful of others that were coming along, and you engaging with them because suddenly you realized this is here and it is blessing. And I am convinced to this day that our three children will have looked back at some point in their life at the church that raised them and feel nothing but love and gratitude for the way that they were raised among you. In other words, the drifting away that had happened now drifted back in the right direction, and it's beautiful. But then there's the other slow drift that goes for the church as we know it, and not just this one. The most recent iteration of the pandemic, the greatest concern that we've had, surprisingly, has not been senior adults not being loved on because they don't know how to use computers. That's a joke. Senior adults, you're amazing. <laughs> you proved you could learn, and you've done better than the whole lot of us. But parents with children, they have struggled and desperately missed the church guiding and mentoring their children beside them in faith. And again, not out of malice, but just out of not knowing what to do or in the drifting of being in our little bubbles. It is a struggle, and it is an appropriate word on Mother's Day. When I got here to Tabernacle, whether you realize it or not, if you're not familiar with us, behind this screen there is an enormous baptistry. You could fit 10 people in it if you wanted to. You shouldn't because it weighed too much with the floor underneath with all the water, but it's like a swimming pool in there. You know, for years we struggled because we couldn't seem to get the rust to stop turning the water orange or the new paint to stick because it had been rusted for so long. An apt metaphor for the Western Christian church. Not a surprise because the last four churches I have been in may not have had rust in the water, but it hadn't been used in a long, long time. How does that happen? And what in the world does that have to do with Paul's word in the book of Galatians? Now, I'm glad Andrew and Heather read it because they didn't sound nearly as cranky as Paul sounds when it is first written. Y'all did good. 
Paul is just Mr. Cranky Pants. You can quote me on that. In Galatians, he is not happy. And if we aren't careful, what we're going to see happening here in this text is we're going to assume that what it really is is Paul just saying, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. You are just a bunch of fundamentalist followers that aren't getting it because you're making it all about the law. And we will see the line in the sand and we'll say, well, we understand the dynamics there. Shame on them. The, the funny thing in here, and had there been a, ser, uh, a sermon title, it probably would have been circumcision party. Nothing says party like circumcision, people. Uh, in some of your biblical translations, those are the actual words used in the text. A circumcision party trounced on up and said there, there to Peter, hey, we can't stand the way you're eating with these people that aren't circumcised. You better change that. And then Peter just kind of cowers away is the way that it's presented. And suddenly the coward picks up his tray of food in the school cafeteria and walks away with his back to those Gentiles and goes and sits with what is perceived as the cool kids. That's not the story. We don't know what the story is, but we know that's not it. We just know that Paul and Peter are approaching identity as a faith community, very differently. Peter, we think, is probably trying to keep the peace because the Jerusalem church is really struggling with the way the Antioch church is engaging with Gentiles. So they trounce on up and they throw a hissy fit. And what does Peter do? But he says, I need to help keep the peace. I'm going to go eat with these folks. And Paul steps in, and you know what he does? He drops the tray of food on the floor to get everybody's attention effectively, and then he lets Peter have it publicly. Whew. This isn't a question about circumcision. It's a question about belonging. Effectively, what we see happening here is Paul asking this question. How do people know they belong to this Jesus movement? How do we know that we even belong to God? And then, I think most importantly today is this question. And if we do belong, how in the world is anybody going to know it? Because it's not circumcision, that's for sure, he says. If we really think that we belong in this Jesus experiment, how in the world will others know about it? Modern day diagnosis. This isn't about circumcision. It isn't about Paul say, y'all be careful, you're not Christian fundamentalist and you're going to scare everybody away from church. I don't think it's that at all. I think what he's challenging here is you don't realize it, but you're doing the exact same thing that I'm throwing a fit about. You've gone and created a cultural norm where it may no longer be about Christian fundamentalism and a practice of law People that are just practicing it faithfully the way that it had been passed to them with the slow drift. Modern day diagnosis for this church and so many others that are wired like we are. We've become a group of fundamentalists as it relates to making it more about a people that do good works than about following a savior. And the natural fruit that is born is good works. I think one of the things that we need to realize in this place is that the beauty that was the beginnings of the rebirth of this church was individual people being drawn to this place by Jesus. And when they came to it, realizing a new community was being born through it. But you get enough critical mass and growth. Do you know what happens with that? 
suddenly the center of life, the source that drew us in, ends up pushed out. And we end up making community what church is about, rather than the one that draws us in and inspires us to be disciples and followers. Therefore, community thrives when it's born through it. If you talk to many, many former staff members and even consultants that we've brought in, what you will hear repeatedly is this is a congregation that thinks they understand what discipleship is and are quick to say it, but you quickly discover that it's really a church that studies the Bible really well and serves humanity really well, but in the end, don't really understand that spiritual formation is about engagement with children and teenagers and adults all in unison together. It is a challenging word. I love the fact that when our children leave this place, they understand what community should be, and it's beautiful. But through the soul-searching that I've done in this nearly impossible year of life, I am coming to the realization that we have, under my guidance as your pastor, made it more about community than we have about a Jesus figure that creates community. And I think it's getting the best of us. This is a church that has found ourselves at different moments modeling what discipleship should look like, which is really soul-searching hard about what it means to be followers of Jesus while simultaneously walking out there in the world talking about it, we're using our hands to serve as an extension of Christ's arms. We're pretty quick to roll up our sleeves and do some pretty amazing things and walk away on the other side of it and realize we didn't even pray when we started or mention Jesus' name once when it was finished. And in the end, it gets us. In the end, what we find is when we hit a crisis, like a pandemic, who saw that coming? If community is the main thing, we end up creating a bunch of mini churches, one Sunday school class, one small group at a time. When we sequester ourselves into classrooms, when we gather around tables for meals, which will happen again one day, we have to ask ourselves, are we sitting with the same people we were just in Sunday school with, or are we deliberately engaging with children and youth, showing them who Jesus is, but actually also talking about our changing understanding of who Jesus is? If we find ourselves gathering in small groups and we ultimately make it about supporting one another, we will walk away feeling loved and encouraged and supported, but if it's not about us diving deep and struggling and celebrating what it means to be a disciple in a changing world and disciples with a changing understanding and expanding understanding of who Jesus is, we have missed the mark. And we can do that for a while, but then we shouldn't be surprised when the next generation leaves and doesn't come back. We are Jesus' people. I heard a a podcast recently, one I hadn't listened to in quite a while, and the challenge that was being offered is these churches, and he's pointing to people like us, Protestant, Baptist types, and others that are kind of left of center, many of which are also in the space that may be right of center, but in the end, we make it all about Jesus, they say. Personal relationship with Jesus. Personal relationship with Jesus. And the commentator in this podcast says, at what point does the church start to talk about the universal nature of Christ? that goes alongside the relationship with Jesus. And I thought, ooh, there's a thought. We need those of you that no longer know if Jesus actually 
is the Son of God at the table. We need those of you that once professed Christ as Lord that are now saying, I'm not even sure I believe in God anymore, sitting right there alongside somebody that is a fundamentalist that says, I know exactly who God is because Scripture says it right here, here, and here. We need those voices at the table together. We need people that find themselves drifting further right than they ever thought they would, right there alongside people that are drifting left more than they ever thought they'd give an opportunity to do so. We need young, young children get go integrated fully into the life of the church, beginning in corporate worship and extending to the tables and every end of anything that we attach to the name of this congregation. Because that's the key, I believe, into us embracing more openly what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Chuck Flugrath pulled me aside years ago at the uh, Christmas in the Fan concert. He had heard me give my spiel. It's one of the few times every seat in the sanctuary is packed. Community pours out, and he says, For years I've been listening to you welcome all these people, and not once do you even mention Jesus' name. And he says, I don't know what's gotten into you, but you said Jesus' name three times. It feels like a revival. And he's kind of laughing at me and patting me and slapping me on the back. He was chiding me but encouraging me at the same time by saying, I see something stirring within you, and I like what I'm seeing. And Chuck Flugraff was no fundamentalist Baptist Christian, I assure you. He's right. Friends, we will never have the opportunity that we have right now before us. Wouldn't have wished it on our worst enemies, but to be given a chance to just pause how we were doing things for over a year and a half and now begin to re resume things, it's like we were standing in a field where everybody, you could look at the tall grass, but you could see where the, the people would actually walk through the grass no matter what. Here are the tracks that people enter and exit. It's all grown back up tall again. You don't get a year and a half like that ever again. As we think about re-entering, I wonder, how are we going to approach this differently? As we think about new ways of coming together for corporate worship, are we going to tuck our children away in another building again? Or are we going to say, the noise is okay. We want them walking with us, seeing us grapple with and celebrate our renewed and even expanding understanding of what it means to be disciple. As we integrate our children and youth that will return to this place, some of which are even unknown to us, and some we don't recognize anymore because they got too tall during the pandemic. But regardless, we're going to find they're the ones that are going to teach us who Jesus is. And we're going to find that if we can put that conversation at the forefront, a new community that will be, will be born, that will feel incredibly familiar, but brand new all at the same time. And that's a part that has been missing, and it is what I as pastor feel like is the revival that is on the way. Last but not least, let me say this as you prepare for the week ahead of messages that point to get drilling down into this. If there's anything consistent in Scripture that we see over and over again, it's that anytime we settle in and feel like we've got our groove because numerical growth is, growth is coming, you know what God does? Sends a stranger into our midst. And suddenly we got to decide, well, what do we do with what we just heard there? Sometimes it's going to be somebody that's going to annoy the living daylights out of us. And other times they're going to say something that sets us on fire in the best of ways. We must prepare for the strangers that are in our midst. 
Even this morning, I learned that somebody has been worshiping with us in the live stream that has never stepped foot in this church other than a wedding that they helped throw for us a couple of years ago. Last week, learned of somebody that lives in the Caribbean that had been worshiping with us actively. There are people that are with us that we don't even know are with us. What they have to say is every bit as valid as something that those of us that have been here for decades have to say because it is how God forms the church one generation at a time and shifts things as we know it. When we welcome the perspective of a stranger, the neighbor, the angel unaware, we find that we walk away with a renewed sense of identity and purpose. Paul and Peter are going at it, but it's not about circumcision Hallelujah, it's not about circumcision. It's about identity. It's about assumptions. It's about resisting the urge to think that faith is about works. Works of faith or works of kindness, either way. As Paul says, it's what the stained glass window says right underneath where Jesus and John the Baptist are portraying that baptism scene in all of their glorious whiteness and red hair. We are buried with Christ in his baptism. It's about choosing death with the assumption that life awaits on the other side. This morning, just before I entered into the sanctuary, I got a text message uh, yesterday that I didn't get a chance to respond to, and I thought, before I get busy into all of this, I should text back. And I thought, I'm not texting back. I'm calling. I'm going to change his name to Johnny. Johnny comes in at the crack of dawn every Saturday morning just about to pick up food for his family and community ministry. First time I ever met him in the alleyway was just a few months ago. He said, hey, pastor, can I have your cell phone number? And I thought, well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I don't know you, but you want my cell phone number. Yeah, I'll give you my cell phone number. There was something in his eyes, something behind the mask, that masked man, something about his eyes that said, trust him. God's spirit is at work in his life. The more that I've gotten to know him, and I still don't know him all that well, I've learned that his best friend was, anybody want to guess? It's Mother's Day, easy question. Who was his best friend, do you suppose? His mother. She died during the pandemic. He's been ministered to by the saints that stand in the alleyway week in and week out and just pour love out unconditionally. He's still grieving. He said, I want your phone number because every single day I have about 80 people that I text individually to send them words of encouragement and scripture and prayer. He sent me a text yesterday like he did the day before. Sometimes they're at four or five in the morning. I don't get them until I wake up much later. And it was like all the others. It's just like, God's put this on my heart, and I want you to hear it. You're loved. Be encouraged. This is hard. I called this morning, and I ended up not catching him, but I left a voicemail and said, do you have any idea how proud your mother must be of you and how grateful she is as she looks down and sees what you're doing with the legacy of Christ's love that's been passed to you. You have been my pastor, friend. Thank you. The stranger that stepped into life for so many of us, 
who knows that even as he struggled and even his pain and even his tears, that Christ could still use him and therefore Christ is. My voicemail concluded with words, I love you, man. I really hope to see you soon. That's church, people. That's Peter and Paul gathering both congregations at the same lunch table and saying, let's say a blessing together and thank Jesus for what it is that's happening as we break bread together. I hope you're challenged like I am. And I so much more hope you are as hopeful as I am. Stay with us this week. There's more we need to engage with. Amen.